Amen and amen. Now, if you would uh, pause for a minute to think back over the last several weeks of your life. Now, what I know for sure is that every single person who's watching or listening this morning has had their lives disrupted in some way or another. We're all, in one sense, learning to navigate this reality of social distancing and and, and stay at home or shelter in place. Uh, And so, in one sense, this is true for every single person who is um, watching this this morning. But the reality is, and, and I think we, we do well to recognize this, um, the, the degree to which individuals and individual families have been affected um, can be dramatically different. And so if you're a doctor or nurse or medical professional, imagine working day in and day out um, serving the sick, only to come home to have to be quarantined from your family. It's been almost two months, y'all. Uh, and I, 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 imagine that, being quarantined for your family, working all day, quarantined from your family. I read a story uh, about another woman whose elderly mother has dementia, and, and, and she's living in an assisted living facility, and she hasn't been able to visit her mom. Imagine being a restaurant worker or someone in the service industry who's been out of work maybe for upwards of two months now. Imagine being a small business owner who still has to pay property taxes and rent, employees, um, worry about employees who are out of work, and on top of that, you've got a family uh, to love and care for. Imagine being someone who um, was closing in on uh, retirement, and over the last few months, um, your 401k or your retirement account has taken a substantial hit because the stock market just plummeted. Imagine being someone who is more vulnerable and susceptible to infection. Imagine living in a place with a higher population density like Chicago or New York where where, um, much of the living um, you do comes in very close contact with other people and it makes it almost impossible to social distance without without locking your family of five in an 800 square foot apartment. Now that's the reality of our friends the Quibells who are in Chicago. Imagine being the husband or wife, a husband or wife and having an abusive spouse or being the child of an abusive parent who's confined to a home. The absolute last place that you'd be safe is at home, especially during this time. Imagine being a couple who just moved to a new city right before all this happened, not really knowing anyone, having a few leads for jobs but nothing firm, and now you're on an island of loneliness. Some of our Resonate family have delivered children over the last two months. Uh, A few more are pregnant now. I can't imagine uh, walking through that during this season. And all of these situations that I just mentioned, here's they're not caricatures. They're not simply given for an illustration. Every one of these examples are real-life people who are all experiencing in their own way the suffering, the sorrow, the heartache, uh, and there is no one-size-fits-all practical fix for each one of these situations. And, And to suggest that there is, it cheapens the suffering and does incredible violence to the humanity of those people. You may be thinking, wow, what an encouragement you are, Shane. The first few moments of this sermon have been a real bummer. Thanks for the encouragement. I say all this because I believe that it's important for us to put flesh and bone and names and faces on the discussion 
the, the, the discussions that we're having. And I believe that because Jesus is king, we as his followers are able to stare the real, this, this suffering and sorrowful reality right in the eyeballs because we serve a risen king who, ser- who stared the reality of sin and suffering and Satan and hell and death right in the eyeballs. And he has and will ultimately undo all of that. The reason I want us to begin by thinking about our own reality and the reality of other human beings is because I, for one, believe that because Jesus Christ is alive, we can be honest about our pain and our anxiousness and our suffering and our uncertainty and our unbelief, and we, as his people, can have a peculiar joy, even in the most uncertain of times. We see this with the life of Jesus. As he goes to individual people and meets them right where they are, sometimes grieving, sometimes sick, feeling lost sometimes, and always inviting them to follow him. They're continually, and then as we are continually experiencing the good news of Jesus come to bear on our reality, Jesus invites us then to do what he did, invite others to come and to see. And this brings us to this book of Philippians that we have in front of us that we're going to camp out over the next several weeks. The big theme of the book of Philippians um, is encouragement toward joy in Christ. If you're watching this this morning and, and joy is the last thing on your mind, I am so, so, so glad that you are here. Because we want to contend for this joy that's found in Christ. The Apostle Paul writes this letter while imprisoned, most likely in the city of Rome, as he is awaiting his own execution. Now that sounds like a bad day, right? Bad couple years even. Pastor Eugene Peterson says this about the book of Philippians. He says, true happiness or joy is not a word that we can understand by looking it up in the dictionary. In fact, none of the qualities of the Christian life can, can be learned out of a book. Something more like apprenticeship is required. Being around someone um, who out of years of devoted discipline shows us by his or her words and deeds what it is. Moments of verbal instruction certainly occur, but mostly an apprentice acquires skill by daily and intimate association with a, quote, master, picking up subtle but absolutely essential things such as timing and rhythm and touch. When we read the letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, we recognize that Paul has been with the truest master, Jesus. And now he seeks to lead this church in Philippi to follow the way of Jesus. Paul never tells the church how to be joyful, per se. He doesn't give them this list of things. He simply shows them um, his own overflowing joy in Christ, and he writes to them from his jail cell. And, And as his work and his reputation are under attack by others. He's, he's on, the, he's on the, um, the, the end of his 20 plus years of going hard of service to Jesus and he's writing this because he wants people to experience his own joy that is in Christ. In this little four chapter book, the word joy or rejoice occurs over a dozen times. The word fellowship or partnership occurs no less than six times. 
It's entirely possible that these two things, joy and fellowship, are two things that are being dried up in his life day after day. And some of you here, joy and fellowship, there, there's no joy because there's no fellowship with others. This is why I believe that the letter to the, to the Philippians is a timely word for us, family. As we look at how Paul is able to be honest about the reality of his own suffering and his own affliction, and he, and he cultivates this peculiar joy in Christ. May we imitate him as he follows Christ and take one step um, um, toward following in the way of Jesus uh, a little more, right? And so y'all ready to jump in? All right, Philippians 1, beginning with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to stop for a second, and I want to mention something that we talk about a lot here at Resonate. And those, those four things, uh, the things that I want to mention are the four disciple-making environments or structures that we see in this text um, that we believe are absolutely necessary for joy in Christ to be cultivated. All right, so in this text, Paul writes to those who, quote, are, who are in Christ. This means he writes to individuals who themselves individually have been united with Jesus. That's the first disciple-making environment, you and Jesus. You practicing the presence of Jesus as an individual, Okay, so you and Jesus, the second disciple-making environment is with others. And so you see Paul and Timothy. In almost every single place that Paul writes from, you see that Paul has one or more believers who are close to him. They know him. He knows them. There is this intimate um, relationship and fellowship. So you've got um, individual, you've got with others. Uh, and then the third disciple-making environment is the church, um, the, the, the church who he's writing to. This local expression of the church made up of individuals who are in Christ. Um, he even involves the overseers and the deacons into that. So he's saying the whole body that's there, um, the expression of the church there. And the fourth disciple-making environment is the church that is planted in Philippi. And so these believers um, have been or are being transformed by the gospel for themselves for sure, but for the good, for, to, to spread the good news in the city that they are in and to live their everyday lives in full view of one another, this Roman colony called Philippi. Paul extends grace and peace of the Lord Jesus to this church in every single one of these spaces. And here's the thing, y'all. We need grace and peace here because each one of these environments has a tendency to have its own unique challenges, right? Some find it easy um, more easy to um, cultivate their own spiritual lives, but they find it very difficult um, to, um, to, to be in a larger community. Some find it easier to be on mission to the city, but find it difficult to cultivate their own spiritual life before God. And what I want to say just quickly, and we're not going to dive into this too much, but all four of these disciple-making environments are necessary and they serve us in helping to see how the gospel comes to bear on different facets of our lives. And so that's a, that's a total freebie this week. Let's move on to, week three, or to verse 3. 
Paul writes, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, here's what I want to do. I want us to get to know the people that Paul is writing this letter to. You see, the more that I read the scriptures, the more that I'm convinced that the best way to read and to study the Bible is like one big story um, that has one big hero, and his name is Jesus. Okay? Now, where that sometimes seems difficult is when we get to the letters that Paul writes. Uh, and here's what we tend to do when we get to the epistles or the letters that Paul writes. Uh, and this isn't wrong necessarily. In fact, it can be helpful. But sometimes we can miss the proverbial forest for the trees. Sometimes we take one particular verse um, from one of these letters and, and we teach it simply as a point of doctrine. And again, that's not necessarily wrong. But think about this for a minute. Paul, who makes it clear from this introduction that he is writing um, to them out of this deep affection for them, he certainly wants them to believe right things, but there's something more that he wants to communicate here. He wants them to know how he's doing. He wants them to see his heart. He wants them to be aware of his situation. He wants his church to remember um, where they've been and where, um, and where they are now. He wants them uh, to know how terribly he misses them and longs for them. You see, that's different. If I'm writing you a letter and I'm just seeking to teach you something, that removes all the emotion from this. And so we have to read it with both of these tensions. This letter, when I read it, this love and this care and this affection from Paul, like when I hear it this way, it makes me want to hear more and it stirs my affection. This letter, I hope, causes us to think how, like just so far in this letter, like I hope that you're thinking, wait a minute, he's thinking about remembering them. How did this church get here? How in the world did it blossom into what we read about? How in the world can a man who's in jail under a death sentence write with such care and concern for others during a time like this? That's a peculiar joy that comes from seeing the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven, family. Do you know the story of the Philippian church and how it was planted? Flip back with me in Acts 16. Y'all, it was a miracle. It was a miracle. We won't read all of this account, but I, but I do sort of want, want you to follow along with me um, in 16, beginning in verse 6. Because we need to see this. Acts 16, verse 6, he says, Then we, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. They had been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they came to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. 
During the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia to help us. After he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's what Here's what Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to see. This is what Paul is writing to them, um, and he wants us to see. This is a church that, based on human wisdom and human um, stick to would have never been planted. And the Spirit was willing to stop them. We don't know why that they were stopped. They were laboring. If they had, they had their minds made up that they were laboring to go into Asia to plant a church, and they were stopped there. And through this dream, Paul um, sees this Macedonian man saying, come help us, cross over and help us. And they're obedient to this vision. And, and, and they go into this city called Philippi, and this is the cast of characters, and we're going to walk through this just really quickly. This is the cast of characters that they meet when they walk in the city. Again, not knowing why they're going to be there, or why they're there, they show up and they look for a synagogue. Well, there's not a synagogue in Philippi, and so they go out to the beach and they run into this, this lady named Lydia, who is a fashionista, a, a dyer of purple clothing. She is probably of well means, and she's a God-fearer. Paul shares the gospel with her. And she's converted. She invites them back to her home, and, and they're, they're gathering her home. And so this is the start of the church in Philippi. And then, um, then the text kind of moves us to this other character that we see, this demon-possessed slave girl who's been following Paul and Silas around over and over and over. And, and she's following around for days, and she's saying right things about Paul and Silas. She's saying, these men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are servants of the Most High God. That is, that is, that's good theology coming from this demon-possessed girl. I love that the passage says this humanity that Paul has. Paul is greatly annoyed. And he says, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And the demon comes out. The girl um, is in her right mind. And then here's what happens next. The owners of this girl who are making bank from using this girl as a carnival sideshow attraction realize that their meal ticket is gone. And so they report Paul and Silas to the authorities. Paul and Silas get locked up. I'm sure they at least thought, did we... Did we hear everything right coming to Europe? We're in jail. I don't know. We know about midnight. The jail cell was filled with the sounds of prayer and hymns. And the prisoners and jailers and and everyone who were there would have been able to hear the good news. And out of nowhere, this earthquake strikes and prisoners' chains are broken. The jailer sees the doors are open and the chains are loose. He In his head, he reasons, everyone's probably escaped. He reasons that his head's on the chopping block for this, and he draws his sword and begins to to take his own life because it's like he's going to die anyway, so he might as well do it himself. And we don't really know about the jailer's relationship to Paul and Silas at this point, but I would assume that that, that that it wasn't a good one. But Paul, in the distance, sees this man. Some would see him as an enemy about to take his own life. And Paul stops him and he says, don't do that. We're all present and we're all accounted for. And 
The jailer falls on his face. And remember, and, and, and remember all of the good news that was heard through Paul and Silas singing and praying. He, this good news is then embodied through the lives of Paul and Silas, and it rocked his world. Paul had saved his physical life by telling him, no, 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 don't kill yourself. But the jailer, listen to this, the jailer wanted to know how to really be saved. What must I do? And Paul says, repent and believe the good news and you will be saved, you and your household. And that's where they go next, y'all. And this entire, um, this man's entire family believes and is baptized And so that's the cast of characters and the events that God used to plant this little church in Philippi. These people and more are hearing this reminder from Paul in Philippians, uh, and and they are no doubt thinking back to how um, the good news made it to them and how they remember these stories of these people that they saw come to faith in Jesus. They remembered... um, that they were and, and, and what they were doing and they remembered how Jesus captivated their hearts just like we sang this morning and it's so true. This is amazing grace, family. Paul's letter reminds them of this grace that they had received and the same grace that they were still living in and it was still living and active and available to them right now. He says, he who began the good work in you Who began the good work in them? Jesus began the good work in them. He encouraged them from from his place of suffering to the place that they find themselves um, to remember and to have confidence in the fact that Jesus always finishes what he starts. Paul may have been saying this to remind himself of that truth as well. There may have been something specific that was going on in the church of Philippi that prompted Paul to say these words. It's very possible that someone watching this live stream today feels stuck, and you need to hear this. You are right where you need to be. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news for you in this place. And Jesus, look right here, Jesus promised to complete the good work that he started in you. That's admittedly difficult to process sometimes. This church family is a family that desires to know you and to contend in prayer with you and for you in these things. You might might be watching and you may say, Shane, I, I don't know Jesus. Well, today is the day of salvation for you. Isn't it it amazing to think about the fact that Jesus would orchestrate you sitting in front of a computer screen right now, maybe randomly watching this, in order to grip your heart with the best news ever because he desires to to begin a good work in you. By the way, if that's you this morning, do not let this moment pass. Would you be willing um, to to, to let me or let someone know, like, we want to care for you in this time? The story of the Philippian church in Acts 16 shows us that God, um, he, he does some pretty amazing stuff in the world in order to bring good news to a people. And in the most amazingly beautiful way, he graciously derails our, our, our ideas of the good life in order to give us new life. 
when we read the words of Paul in chapter 1 of Philippians, we read it knowing this story, and it immediately, for me at least, it immediately connects us to our own story as individuals and and as a church family. Flip back over to Philippians 1. We're going to finish reading verses 9 through 11. Paul gives the Philippians and us, I think, some encouraging words in regard to how he is praying for them, and and I believe this is for us as well. May we be guilty of praying this prayer for one another. Verse 9, Paul writes, And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, here's what Paul's saying. He's pray- here's what he's praying, um, that their love would keep growing Throughout the remainder of the letter, um, we will begin to see how their love for Jesus, for Paul, for one another, for their city, and, and, and how it works itself out. We're going to be able to see these things. We see it here that, that Paul, he isn't just talking about some sort of ethereal love that's out there someplace. He uses two particular ways in particular that he is praying that their love will grow. In knowledge or in intellect, And in discernment, some of your versions may say wisdom. So knowledge and wisdom. And so we have to ask ourselves, what does it look like to grow in the knowledge of love? Well, I think it's reflecting on the story of God. Our story of how Jesus has by grace moved heaven and earth to bring good news to us individually and as a people. The story of how... um, Though admittedly we have not arrived, that thanks be to God that many of us are able to look back at our life and see, see a time where we, were, we believed that um, running our own lives was the best way and now praise God that the gospel has come to us and that, that we can thank God, uh, we can recognize that we have not arrived but thank God that he's transformed us up to this point and he is, uh, like we have, we have knowledge that he is going to finish the good work that's, that started in us, reminding us of this um, through the words of others that we may be in community with. And so we grow in knowledge of love through teaching, story, reminding. And so what does it look like to grow in the wisdom of love? Well, wisdom by definition is knowing what is right and then living in accordance with it. Okay, being able to do what you know is the best thing. Most of the time, just so you know, most of the time, knowledge is not our issue. Many of us know what to do. We just don't know what to do with it. We don't know how to live, live, live wise lives. It's being obedient to what we know to be true. And so for this, we need wisdom. In a time like the one we are in, we need wisdom. When there seems to be zero reliable news sources, when everything is either overhyped or underhyped, when everything is highly politicized, and when we may feel frozen in our tracks, paralyzed to move because we fear of a misstep or being wrong or causing harm, we recognize that we need God to give us wisdom that comes from the gospel. The book of James tells us, and this is good news for us, the book of James says, does any one of you lack wisdom? Ask God and he'll give it to you. So let's ask him. Let's ask him for wisdom. 
This prayer that Paul utters is for a particular purpose. Paul says, I'm praying this so that. Here's the reason. He wants the good news that has come to him. Who, who he, he calls himself, the, he's the self-professed chief of sinners. He wants this good news that has come to him who is in a desperate time, in a desperate place, in a jail cell seeking a death sentence, is seeking to cultivate a, partic- a peculiar joy in Christ. Paul is saying to us in his prayer that the knowledge and wisdom of the love of God realized in all times in all spaces will bring forth the fruit of God's eternal kingdom. Habakkuk and Isaiah say it like this, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We say it like this, that every man, every woman, every child would have a daily encounter with Jesus in word and in deed. His encouragement to this church in Philippi during this time And my encouragement to the church in Madison, Tennessee in this time is to continue to practice the way of Jesus in the place where God has planted you. Paul says, imitate me in doing this. He's in prison. He's still practicing the way of Jesus in prison. Safer at home, we've practiced the way of Jesus. Here's the thing. In a few weeks, and and we'll get into this a little more, there's going to be this hard press for us to all go back to, quote, normal again. And family, we get to choose what we put back into our lives. Don't let anybody fool you. We get to choose. And so now, in this place, may we cultivate uh, this peculiar joy in the space that we are in place that you're in is not a problem for Jesus. And so this morning, here's the questions that I want us to think through. Verse 6 says, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I just want to ask you, how does verse 6 evoke joy or hope in you? How does verse 6 evoke joy or hope in you? How will you take this time in the place that you find yourself today to create a new normal that you will be able to walk in even after a pandemic? How will you take time this morning, the place you find yourself in, to create a new normal that you will be able to walk in after the pandemic? Think about ways that verses 9 through 11 can be lived out. Knowledge and wisdom, word and deed. Who are the people that God has placed in your path? Think about the ways that verses 9 through 11 can be lived out. And in this, we'll flesh this out a little bit more next week. But what does it mean? What do you think it means to be partners in the gospel? And why does that matter? What does it mean to be partners in the gospel? Why does that matter? And then the final question, what did you hear Jesus say to you this morning through this? What did you hear Jesus say to you this morning? Let's take some time just to reflect on those questions. I'm going to pray for us. 
Lord Jesus, would you right now in this time and in this place help us to know of your great love for your people. Lord, begin a saving work in someone this morning. Lord, give joy to your people so that we may sing praises to you, our King. Amen and amen.